This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Reopening borders. Boy, that was something that we were hoping we could be talking about because maybe, just maybe, we would get lucky and COVID-19 would magically go away. That hasn't happened. That's not going to happen, it appears. None of the statistics back that up. In fact, in some countries where it seemed to be going down or away, now they're starting to see more cases. We have a very important border, and it is with our closest neighbor, our very good friend, the United States of America, our big brother sometimes we refer to them as, and that border was shut down to traffic where you now can't go and visit any of the places in the United States that maybe you would frequent? I mean, how many times would you go across the border from Sarnia to Port Huron or drive across the Ambassador Bridge or go through the tunnel? Chances are, given where we live, it would happen quite a bit. That has been shut down for a couple of months, and there have been ways around some of the commercial traffic that they have figured out, but for the rest of us, no, that, that has remained closed. That particular agreement between Canada and the United States, between Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and U.S. President Donald Trump, expires next week, 20th. Well, they're already talking, as we've been told, that they will extend that to June 21st. But let's take a close look at what is happening right now. And one of the best people to do that with is a former governor of Michigan and former United States ambassador to Canada. We are very pleased to have with us Ambassador James Blanchard on London Live. Ambassador Blanchard, thanks so much for taking some time for us. Well, hello, London Live. You know, my uh, my sister and brother-in-law lived there for many years, and my nephews are all raised there. My nephew was married there. Uh, my brother-in-law taught at Western and also here on college. So I'm, I haven't been in London lately, but it was a part of our family. So I'm happy to be on your show. Well, we're happy to have you. Let's talk about the Canada-U.S. border closure and the idea that it would be extended until June 21st. How do you see this border closure operating right now? Well, you know, only essential services are being permitted, but that includes a lot of the trade. For example, agricultural trade has actually increased both sides. Exports from Canada, exports to Canada, actually has increased from before the virus. Manufacturing, of course, is way down, but it's going to start up uh, on Monday. Um, And so the auto companies are going to begin to slowly start back up. That's good news. Uh, But normal family visits, tourism, you know, uh, going across from Detroit to Windsor for dinner on Erie Street, those are still prohibited. Uh, So I don't know when. I mean, you know, I I know that the prime minister has indicated he needs to keep things closed down till the end of June. My guess is the U.S. will go along with that for sure. Um, And we're trying to save lives. Now, I will tell you, there are so many essential services that are flowing, like 3,000 healthcare workers who live in Windsor or Essex County, they are crossing the border every day, 3,000 of them, to work in our healthcare industry. There are specialist doctors in Michigan that are moving over to Windsor each day. There are auto executives that are um, permitted to go back and forth. But for the normal traffic of just enjoying life, going to your cottage, whatever, that is prohibited thus far. So we'll see. Ambassador Blanchard, 
I'm going to be honest with you. There are a lot of people above the 49th parallel that kind of get concerned sometimes with United States President Donald Trump and what he might try to do, what his wishes are when it comes to opening up border crossings to more people. Do you have any sense as to how those decisions are made and whether he can just kind of point north and say, yeah, let's get this done? Well, he feels he can. You know, look, you're not. I'm not. I'm not a big fan of Mr. Trump. I don't even think. I mean, he's an abnormal personality, uh, and I'm a strong supporter of Joe Biden. So I'm not the, the right guy to talk to. Uh, we all have to live with him. I feel bad that our friends in Canada have to live with him, but that's uh, a reality. Um, no, I think you know whatever he says, whatever he tweets. Eventually, his people usually talk him out of whatever goofy things come up. And I think um, there'll be reasonably smooth relations in how to open the border with Canada between the White House and Prime Minister Trudeau. I do. Uh, And remember, you know, in this country of ours, in in the United States, almost every governor, member of Congress, mayor, business leader, labor leader views Canada as a very valuable partner and friend. So hopefully we can manage through this and open things up when it's safe, we're trying to save lives. And, you know, in the United States, uh, 33 million people have filed for unemployment benefits. That's about the population of Canada. So the economic damage is huge, but the human damage is also huge. And so we're going we're gonna to end up, I'm sure, being over 100,000 deaths. So it's not that now. It's in the high 80s. But we're trying to save lives, and you just can't say, well, we're going to balance a life with a job, you know, because it's somebody else's life and your job. So <laughs> we're going to have to be compassionate and reasonable and uh, work it through. And uh, Canada appears to be doing better on this, but of course, you're far fewer people. We're talking with Ambassador James Blanchard, 45th Governor of Michigan and former United States Ambassador to Canada. Ambassador Blanchard, give us maybe an idea of the political climate right now. I keep listening to President Trump and thinking he's got to stop campaigning and start leading, but that's my own personal view on this. In terms of heading toward 2020, which is a big year, which is an election year, uh, I mean, we're in it now, but heading toward the part of the year where the election will happen, what do you feel is happening right now in the United States in terms of people paying attention to what would normally be a race? that dominated headlines. Yeah, well, they're paying attention to it through the lens of COVID-19 and the recession. We have a recession, serious recession, probably the worst since the Great Depression. The difference is we have a lot of programs that offer benefits that they didn't have during the Depression. Uh, so it's all being viewed through that. Um, and if you look at the, the public the opinion surveys that are looking at the rating that Mr. Trump is getting and others, then you see that the governors of the states who really emerged here in managing this by default, I might add, uh, the governors are all, their, their popularity is ranging in the 70 to 80% of support approval. Mr. Trump's is in the low to mid 40s. So the governors are getting high marks for managing this, even though a lot of them have shut their states right down. Mr. Trump is not. His, obviously, his role has been very uneven. He's passed the buck to the governors. He's looking for scapegoats. And that would be the only risk with Canada is if he tries to make Canada a scapegoat on this. Right now, he's blaming the press corps. He's blaming some governors, calling them names. He's obviously blaming the Chinese, who are easy to blame. 
Um, it's always somebody else. You know, he's come up with goofy ideas of taking Lysol or injecting disinfection. I mean, people are laughing at him. Um, he treats his supporters like a bunch of dummies, and I, I find it offensive. And I say that. He's, he's a man that stood up and said, I could stand on Fifth Avenue in New York and shoot someone, and my supporters would still be behind me. So he has a very low regard for his own base. And as Nancy Pelosi said, I don't think he respects the presidency, which he's serving in. So we're lucky to have, I might add, Nancy Pelosi and the House Democrats. And we're all disappointed with the senators and the Republicans who've gone along with all this. They should know better. In the meantime, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna muster through it. But it's, it's a tragic, tragic chapter in American politics, in the American presidency. And as you know, he's... He's on again, off again, and dealing with Canada and Prime Minister Trudeau and others. So all we can say is we we beg for your patience with us. We'll get through it. Ambassador James Blanchard with us, former governor of Michigan, former United States ambassador to Canada. Ambassador Blanchard, if we were to look at, at your role as being governor of Michigan, you outlined that we have the United States now with kind of everything being left into the hands of the governors. Would a, a different strategy be helping in any way, or would this ultimately come into the hands of the governors to figure out what should be happening in each state? Well, yeah, I think you, you know the, the states are the laboratories of democracy, so I think there has to be flexibility in letting states manage through, but it would have been much easier if we'd had a national strategy in terms of personal protective equipment, uh, health care policy, guidelines, uh, manufacturing help and support. Yeah, we, we, needed a national, we need a national strategy now in terms of assisting the states. The states are all going broke because people aren't paying taxes, they're not working, people are being laid off, they're not working. Their increased services for the demand for services. There's increase in uh, the drop in revenue and increase in costs. So there needs to be a national strategy to help the states and the cities deal with the fallout of this. Otherwise, there'll be more layoffs, more suffering, and the recession will become uh, extended, really. So there has to be a national strategy. There's no reason to have a national government. Frankly, if you don't have a national strategy, we could go back to before we had our Constitution. Um, so, yeah, th- there's been a real failure of leadership in Washington, no question about it. But governors have filled the vacuum, but it's all uneven. And, they, they, and of course, in the White House has been saying, um, telling people, open up your state, open up your state, when even their own guidelines are being followed. So it's it's really it's it's really bad. By the way, because we mentioned Michigan, I should say construction on the Gordie Howe Bridge is proceeding, and that's a really important project for our trade, our security, our safety, our quality of life. And I will also tell you, I'm quite confident that Joe Biden will carry Michigan in the November election. I do believe he'll be reelected. And I, you know, I've been around a while. I've been involved in a lot of campaigns and played a major role in Bill Clinton's campaigns. I I think Biden will carry Michigan and he will win. Well, Ambassador Blanchard, we really appreciate your time. And don't worry, all we all have is patience. So we'll continue that patience. And we really appreciate you taking some time for us. Thank you so much. And please continue to be safe. Thank you for having me on. Thank you.
That is Ambassador James Blanchard, former governor of Michigan and former United States ambassador to Canada. And he mentioned the whole scapegoat thing. That that would be the concern that we should have as a country, that somehow we get scapegoated for something and, and the back of the United States is turned on us in some way. You don't want that. And right now, the U.S. president has been looking for scapegoats and has been pointing out scapegoats because he doesn't want to wear this heading into the 2020 election, which is why I continue to believe if he would spend more time leading and less time campaigning, the United States would be in a better picture. Even Ambassador Blanchard pointed out, you need a national strategy. Why have a government if you don't have a national strategy? But a national strategy would be something that U.S. President Donald Trump could wear. We didn't know what physical distancing was. We certainly didn't know what contact tracing was. And now both things are big elements of our lives. One will probably become even bigger if it isn't big yet. And that one is contact tracing. We figured out physical distancing, but how much resistance are we going to get to things like contact tracing? In its old form, hey, nobody has a problem with that. You're diagnosed with COVID-19 and the public health department that is nearest to you kind of looks around and says, okay, who have you been in contact with? And you try and figure it out. That doesn't seem to be a problem for many people. What does is the idea that, wait a minute, if we did this through some great technology available to us, we could be far more exact. But in doing so, people would know where you've been. Now, if you think you own a smartphone and people don't know where you are, um, maybe we need to have a different conversation. But right now, we're going to have a conversation with Daniel Leung of Live Now Technologies on their contact tracing app. Daniel, thanks so much for taking some time to be here today on London Live. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mike. Really appreciate it. We are going to talk very quickly about privacy, which tends to be a concern. But I guess even before we get to that, in defining what contact tracing is when using an app, can you help us to understand what is taking place? Yeah, so basically what's happening in the back end is um, your phone is uh, looking, uh, I guess, creating a log of uh, other phones that it's been in proximity with. Um, and should any of those phones uh, ever flag themselves as having uh, or being COVID positive, um, then your phone will be notified um, and the phone will notify you and tell you that you may have come in co- close contact with a COVID positive case. And then from there, it would provide you with some next steps on what you need to do to protect yourself and your community, um, typically quarantining um, or maybe getting tested, um, whatever the local guidelines are. So that's kind of like the basis of uh, what's going on in the back end. How does that work then? It's cataloging, like you say, the phones that it's been in contact with. So how does the app then find out that maybe one of those phones has tested positive? Yeah, so basically um, your phone is cataloging um, um, interactions with other phones using an anonymous identifier, um, something like A123. Um, and should A123, um, someone like either self-input that they are COVID positive or after they get tested um, and uh, the database indicates, the provincial database indicates that they've tested positive, um, then A123 will be flagged as COVID positive 
and anyone um, whose phone has ever seen a one two three, um, those phones will be will like they'll know that they've seen a one two three, and then they'll let the user know if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And and when I said one of those phones, I mean obviously the the owner of one of those phones testing positive for COVID nineteen. You don't have to worry about COVID nineteen getting into your phones at this point. But when we when we look at kind of that kind of contact, immediately people are going to say, okay, well that in some ways that sounds great. I would want to know or be notified if. I ran into somebody or had close contact with somebody who did have the virus. I definitely would want to know that. I definitely would make sure that I would quarantine for 14 days to make sure I didn't have the virus, and that would reduce the spread. Privacy comes up in that, okay, well, if I have that app and I'm required to have that app by my employer, for instance, then what exactly do I need to know about the privacy element of where my whereabouts or where my data could be going? How is that handled when you're the creator of one of these apps? Yeah, so I think one thing that's really important to understand is that um, for us, privacy is insanely important because we we rely on the trust of users and customers uh, to, to even have a business. And so uh, we need to make sure that our users can trust us with their privacy. And so that's why it's a priority for us. In terms of like steps that we take to, to protect users' privacy is um, anything that's identifiable, so users' name, uh, email, their contact info, all of that stays on their phone and it doesn't leave their phone. So all they are to us is a random, um, like random anonymous device ID. Um, in terms of like the location data and all of that, um, Yes, like we can go into every person's individual location data if we really, really needed to. Um, but there's no there's no point in us doing that um, just because of a critical mass of data that's that's there. It's just like really, it's a lot of work for us to do, um, and there's really no point. And we also don't share that data with the employer, so it's not a tool for employers to to track their employees. It's just a tool for employers to keep their people safe. We don't provide any of that um, location data to employers. All of it is de-identified and, and stored um, in an encrypted environment. Um, on top of that, uh, the other thing is uh, we have certain ways of adding noise to uh, further anonymize that data. So, for example, if someone is at home, um, we rather than um, kind of pushing to our cloud their address or their latitude or uh, longitude uh, location, it gets um, anonymized as like it gets flagged as home, if that makes sense. So um, when a user is at home, um, it just get, it just tells us that they're at home, but it doesn't tell us where home is exactly for that user. So we have ways of introducing noise into the data to anonymize um, some of it um, while ensuring we can do contact tracing when people are out in the public. We're talking right now about contact tracing through an app. Remember, some of the strategy, especially among countries that have done very well, is to make use of contact tracing so that you can identify where that spread could potentially be going and then try and halt it before it continues to spread even more. And some employers will require two things for employees to go back to work when we talk about reopening, and that is a mask, and the other is... The use of a contact tracing app. And we're talking with Daniel Leung of LiveNow Technologies, one of the creators of an app like this. Daniel, do we know how many of these apps are coming out right now? 
Yeah, so uh, there's probably over a dozen of these kinds of apps uh, coming out. A lot of them are based on um, the open source projects pushed out by, by Singapore and a couple of the education institutions um, in the U.S. Um, but there's, there's actually quite a few of these apps out there right now. What kind of a response have you had so far? Um, from like the private sector or from the, the government? Well, let's handle both of them. Let's start with the private sector. What kind of a response have you had from them? Yeah, so with the private sector, um, response has overall been great. Um, I mean, we haven't really done too much outreach. It's mostly been um, companies coming to us. Um, a lot of them have heard about what, what um, a lot of them knew about us um, through our core business, which is productivity and mental health um, measurement. Um, and uh, uh, they've heard about what we're doing um, around COVID-19 and uh, came, came to us. So that, that's been pretty good. Um, we're currently working with a couple of construction, manufacturing, um, and entertainment industry customers to get this implemented in, in their environment. Um, we're, we've kind of um, added a couple components, um, everything from prevention through behavior and nudges through push notifications and ensure people are complying with best practices to containment through the contact tracing component. Um, so response from the private sector has been great. Um, however, with the public sector, um, with the government, we just haven't really been um, seeing the, the level of engagement needed on their end for it to be worth um, our time as an early stage startup to um, put in effort on our end um, beyond what we've put in already. Uh, we spent um, probably two, three weeks going back and forth with a couple of governments and then haven't heard back from them. Um, and so... I don't know if it's uh, they're no longer looking for this kind of solution or they've found a solution or um, not sure what's going on, but uh, haven't heard back from them. Isn't that interesting? Wow. Well, we'll see what does play out as we go forward in all of this, because to tell you the truth, I'm somebody who is thinking, hey, this is this is only going to help. Can it work in any place right now or does it kind of have to be introduced in a place where employers are already looking to make use of it? Um, it can be introduced anywhere, honestly. Um, we the, the main difference about our product versus others is we have the ability to do what we call indirect contact tracing. And so adoption rate can be much, much lower um, because we can uh, because we can people can retrospectively, if you didn't have the app at the time of contact, as long as one person in that general area had the app at the time, um, we can retrospectively tell you that you may have had contact with COVID. Um, and so you don't need the amount of like instant adoption that you would need with an app similar to what Singapore open sourced. Fantastic. Now, we did get an email here from Mario, and Mario wants to know, hey, where do I find the app? Is it on the app store? Yeah, so uh, the app is currently not in the um, it's not in the app store, um, mainly for, for two reasons. One, uh, we're focused on the private sector deployment right now. And uh, number two, um, there's just too many apps kind of out there right now. And uh, we just want to make sure that this will only work if people are um, like we have we have a certain level of adoption um, and it makes it harder to get that level of adoption when it's so fragmented. Um, and so we're kind of just like focusing on on the private sector where we've had a lot of traction. And if public sector wants to engage with us, we're happy to do so. Um, but otherwise, we're kind of taking a um, backwards seat on that end. 
All right. Well, Daniel, we really appreciate the work that you have been doing in this and and in health tech as well, and continued success. Thanks for trying to make a difference in the fight against COVID-19. Yeah, thanks a lot, Mike. Be safe. Yeah, you too. Have a good one. That is Daniel Leung, and Daniel is with Live Now Technologies. Live Now is spelled L-I-V-N-A-O, Live Now Technologies. And this, again, is something that is being done in other countries. It is being looked at as we look west and we have some businesses reopening. The employer will say, you need a mask and you need this app or you need an app or you need some measurement of contact tracing on your phone and as daniel says they're not just putting this out to the public because again then you you can get concerned about privacy issues where this is this is kind of the other way around where they go through employers i'm surprised that they did not have more luck in the way of the public sector unless the public sector is still worried about imaging and its own image Um, But if you look at other countries, we're going to talk to Germany tomorrow, and we are going to find out how they've been dealing with this. This is something that has been used a whole lot, and this is something that is considered to be one of the keys in really cracking down on the spread of COVID-19. So think about it as it stands. If you were walking around with your phone, all it's doing, as Daniel outlined, is tracking the phones that you come in contact with, because a lot of people carry smartphones. So your phone and that app are contacting or cataloging all of those phones. If all of a sudden someone is found to have tested positive and that information becomes available, is entered by an employer, I suppose, whatever it happens to be, then all of those numbers are immediately notified. Hey, you were in close proximity with this person. Wouldn't you want to know that? I personally would want to know that, but I'm a person who feels they don't really have anything to hide. So if you want to know where I am or see where I am or whatever, okay, go go for it. Life's not that exciting. You'll find that, wow, he doesn't do a whole lot. That's that's not really as as exciting as as I was thinking somebody's life would be. No, You, you want to see where I am? But there are a lot of people who will have issues with that and where does that information go and who gets to see it because the movement of people is one of those key things that a lot of businesses want to know about so interesting conversation contact tracing is a term that if you have heard it and you are tired of it well guess what you're going to be hearing it a whole lot more as we move forward especially looking ahead to tomorrow when Ontario Premier Doug Ford talks about the next phase of reopening parts of the province and how that's going to be done. I don't know whether he's going to mention contact tracing, but you may have employers who say, yeah, we're going to reopen, but we want to have we want to have that contact tracing app all set up. This is the seven year anniversary of. May 13th, 2013, and a goal that was scored in London with 0.1 seconds left. You will be able to argue whether or not it's the biggest goal in London Knights history, but you probably can't argue that it is the biggest London Knights goal scored in London. Bo Horvat with 0.1 seconds left. And we described kind of what happened where the puck went along the goal line 
And Bo Horvat celebrated. The Knights celebrated. Bo went over to the bench. His teammates are asking him, is it in? Is it in? And Bo kind of nodded his head and said he thought it was a goal. But during all of that was a long video review. OHL referee Kendrick Nicholson, who's now in the National Hockey League, was talking upstairs with Steve Baker, the replay official at that game. And joining us right now on London Live is Steve Baker, the replay official at that game. Steve, what do you remember from that day? Hi, Mike. How are you doing? I'm great. Good. Yeah, it was, uh, it was you know, a, um, a fan's dream. Game seven, close series all along the way. Um, and uh, a tie game and everything else, and uh, it was pretty electric in that building. But uh, you know, the play as it as it carried on, um, it was uh, ended up uh, down in the very end. And uh, Bo Horvat, standing off to the left of the post, was able to get a shot away, and uh, could not tell. We're watching the TV feed, and obviously, you couldn't tell from that feed whether the puck was in the net. As much as he was celebrating, um, Kendrick uh, Nicholson had ended up behind the net and uh, um, he had a good view of, of, of what was going on, but his angle, unfortunately, wouldn't allow him to see the puck come completely across the line. Um, so, you know, from my standpoint, that overhead camera view of the net, uh, it showed the puck being shot and being shot across the net along the goal line, essentially, and striking the post on the other side and coming back. Uh, and just for a momentary uh, piece of time that the puck had crossed the goal line and there was completely white ice between the goal line and the front edge of the puck. And then the Barry goaltender had slammed his glove on top of the puck and it was no longer there to be seen. But there was a split second that that there was definitely confirmation that the puck had entered the net. But Steve, it really was that close. It was. It was. Uh, there was not much white space between the puck and the goal line, but it, it had completely crossed the goal line. So essentially, it was a good goal. Um, I had I had Ted Baker standing over my shoulder, uh, and I, I was able to rewind it a couple times just to make sure. Um, and uh, said to him, I said, "That's a good goal." And then Kendrick was on the phone and talking with him and he asked if I would check it again, which I did uh, and confirmed uh, another time that, that the puck was in the net. And then uh, the rest was history. The celebration began. Steve Baker joining us replay official in 2013 for that goal for that night as Bo Horvat scored with 0.1 seconds left. Steve, how rare is it for an official to say, Hey, can you have another look at it? Can you check it again? Well, our policy in the OHL is that we review every uh, every goal just to confirm that it was legally put into the net. And if you recall, um, with Kendrick's position, he was behind the net, and he had actually waved the goal off. He did not have a good enough view of it to see it end of the net. So as far as he was concerned, the puck had not entered. So it was, it was up to uh, him to make the phone call to me, the video goal judge, uh, and then from my overhead view, I was able to see the puck definitely had completely crossed that goal line, and we had a good goal. You knew before 
anybody else outside, well, you knew before anybody else, you and Ted Baker outside of, say, Kendrick Nicholson and then the fans. So what was it like to know that it was a good goal, to know that there was going to be a big eruption coming, and then to actually hear it? Well, it was it, it was kind of unique where the TV broadcast is a few seconds behind. So when the whole play developed and finished off and um, Bo Horvat had thought he had scored a goal, of course, we had the big cheer and, and the crowd carrying on thinking it was a goal, but there was a couple steps that had to be taken beforehand. Uh, and then obviously the eruption when, when Kendrick had pointed the center ice after speaking with me and hanging up the phone, pointed the center ice to indicate that it was a goal, then... Yeah, we had that eruption, uh, plus a little bit more. I think it was. Uh, I'm, I'm my my position in that day was underneath the stands near where the Zamboni went on and off the ice, and uh, yeah, it was it was shaking in that room with uh, with a lot of the action that was going on around the ice for sure. Amazing. Well, Steve, you've given us a perspective I think most of us have yet to hear. So thank you for doing that. Keep safe during all this and keep those memories alive, so that hopefully someday soon we get some people making some new ones. Cheers. Thanks, Mike. All the best to you as well. Take care. Take care. That is Steve Baker, OHL video goal judge and working the game in which Bo Horvat scored with .1 seconds left. Again, you can read more about that story at globalnews.ca. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.